You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Quentin. I'm the pastor of Redemption Church, Calgary South, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to come up here and and preach God's Word, open God's Word before you uh, this morning. Uh, I am the guy who had his car stolen this morning. I uh, got up this morning and started, uh, started the car. Of course, it was minus 30 in Okotoks and uh, came out 20 minutes later and it was gone. So, uh, but here I am, we're here to preach. And uh, with that news, that awesome news on this uh, Boxing Day as well, I'm talking to Pastor Trevor on the phone. And, uh, and him and Heather had a a fire in their oven this morning. So it's been an eventful morning altogether. And, uh, but we get to gather under God's Word here this morning. So grab your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapter 4 and verses 15 to 22. We'll also be looking at Ezekiel as well a little bit later, but we'll start off in 1 Samuel 4, 15 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, just slide your hand up. The ushers would love to bring you one to have for yourself here this morning. Well, here we are, Boxing Day. The gifts are unwrapped. The food is still digesting, right? Big, exciting day yesterday for many, uh, but yet it has come and gone. Some of us probably woke up this morning uh, just breathing maybe a sign of, or a sigh of relief that Christmas Day is behind us, but some may be a little bit sad that uh, it has come and gone so fast again. Uh, to be honest, this morning I woke up and uh, uh, I was kind of glad that the busyness of yesterday was somewhat over, but yet again, I'm also a little bit sad uh, that Christmas has come and passed, because I love Christmas. When I was a kid, uh, Christmas was really the center of my year, when September would come around, uh, and then, you know, Halloween would pass, and, and all that kind of stuff. I remember getting uh, really hyped that Christmas was coming. When it came to Christmas as a kid, I loved the time together as a family. I loved the fun food and all the treats that went with it. I loved the music, loved the decorations, loved growing up in church as well. And I loved, remember going to Christmas on, uh, or going to church on Christmas Eve and, and uh, celebrating Christ coming as a child. But if I truly think about what excited me most about Christmas when I was a kid, that whole anticipation of that coming day, I think if I honestly look back, I think uh, a lot of that in anticipation was mostly about the presence. Uh, you know, it was in the wondering and the anticipation and the excitement uh, about what would be under the tree for me on Christmas morning. Like all the, all the other stuff is good and fun, but, but I remember really thinking, what, what am I going to get? And would I, re- would I get what I really wanted in fact, I've seen a Boxing Day ad already this morning saying, now's the time to get what you really wanted, right? Uh, for me, it was about the presence. Now, as you grow older and you have your own kids, it turns less and less about what you're getting and about what you're giving for sure. But the question still needs to be asked, even in this kind of flip-flop of receiving to giving excitement, is, is it all about the presence? Is Christmas all about the presence. And now my answer may surprise you and it may initially sound quite opposite to the standard Christian answer, but my answer is yes. Christmas is all about the presence. Friends, Christmas is all about 
the presence, but before you turn and, and say that I'm preaching heresy here, listen closely. It's not about presence, P-E, or P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. It's, it's about the presence, right? It's not about the gifts that's under the tree, but it's, it's the presence, the very presence, the personal and glorious presence of God. That's what it's about. Christmas is all about the glorious presence of God. And so today as we take a break from, um, you guys are taking a break, I think, through the book of Romans, uh, we're going to be taking a tour in the Scriptures from Ichabod to Emmanuel. From Ichabod to Emmanuel. And we're going to look at two stories about an anticipated birth, one found in the Old Testament and the other found in the New. Uh, two stories about two babies, which, uh, which in their namesake have extremely uh, meaningful names. And then this is all about, these two stories all really point about God's glorious presence with man, one departing and one arriving. And so we're going to start with the story of Ichabod, probably not a name that you know too well, not a name on the top 10 list of baby names of 2021, that's for sure, Uh, but it's a name with great significance towards the whole reason of Christmas. And so we'll start here in 1 Samuel 4 verses 15 to 22, and, uh, and we're going to learn about Ichabod. First Samuel 4, 15 to 22. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're gathered here this morning on this, uh, this cold day, uh, a bitterly cold day, we're gathered here with, with life still upon us, with cars getting stolen, with, with things lighting on fire in the oven, with whatever else came our way this morning and, and whatever normally takes place in our lives. But we gather together because we are your children. We gather together because we are covered in your righteousness, that you are a good and gracious God, that you are merciful towards us. We, when we gather on, on this, uh, in this Christmas season to remember, uh, to remember your coming 2,000 years ago, to remember Jesus Christ putting on flesh for mankind, living the lives that we could not live, dying the death that we deserved so that we could have everlasting life 
in your glorious presence forever. And so this morning, as we look at your word and what it has to say about your presence with man, we pray that by your spirit, by your word, you would do your work within us, that you would bring the transformation that is needed yet again today. In all of this, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So if Christmas is all about the presence, if it's all about the glorious presence of God, what does this story about this baby named Ichabod have to do with Christmas? Well, friends, as we're going to see the story of Ichabod here, it's, it's ultimately a story about us. It's a story about God's glory departing from mankind because of sin. This is a continual story that we see being played out over and over again through Scripture, throughout history, and in our very lives. That in our sin, and this is point number one, that Ichabod is us without God's glorious presence. Ichabod is us without God's glorious presence. Let's look back at verses 21 to 22 of 1 Samuel 4. It says here that she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And again we see here, she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod is us without God's glorious presence. Now the story comes from 1 Samuel comes from the time of Israel when it was being ruled by judges. Samuel was to be the last judge, and he was uh, the f- to be the first of the prophets uh, who would also anoint King Saul, and then as well King David after him. And if you remember the story of Samuel, you'll remember the miraculous birth uh, of himself to his mother Hannah, and you'll remember that the, the priest to whom Hannah sent her child Samuel was the priest named Eli. And Eli had two sons, as we read, Hophni and Phinehas here, to which Eli is the father-in-law of this dying mother in our text here, and she is the wife of Phinehas, who, as we just read, is hearing that her husband was killed, and is hearing that the Ark of the Covenant was captured, and in hearing as well of her father-in-law falling over and dying in her own dying breaths, the child was named Ichabod, saying twice, that the glory has departed Israel. Friends, this is a a story of God's very personal, glorious, covenant presence being removed because of sin. You see, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were those who should have been holy men following in the footsteps of their father, but were as revealed in the beginning of 1 Samuel, were actually worthless men according to the Scripture. This is in stark contrast of, of who, who Samuel would become. If you look at 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, you see it's, the Scriptures say, now the sons of Eli were what? They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So as they were working as priests in the tabernacle at Shiloh with their father, Eli, unlike their father, they were in fact acting as false priests. And the key issue to their falseness was was their worthlessness, to which the Scriptures say is because they did not know the Lord. This is a pretty big deal. We have priests of the Lord who don't know the Lord. 
And it was through the outworking of their worthlessness, in part, that we see the glory of God leaving the people of Israel. You see, the sons of Eli, in their not knowing of God, were using their priestly positions not to serve the Lord, but to serve their own sinful desires. The New Testament calls this using uh, their, their position for shameful gain. If you go into chapter 2, verses 13 to verse 17 in First Samuel, you'll see that when it came to the priestly sacrifices, they were sinfully and blatantly taking advantage of sacrificial offerings for themselves. As there were certain Levitical rules for how priests were supposed to be using a portion of the sacrificial meat to sustain themselves, what we see being practiced by Hophni and Phinehas was a complete disregard for God's instructions. You see, they would take a three-pronged fork and they would stab it into the boiling meat and, and, and they would take the biggest and the finest portion of the sacrifice for themselves. And if anybody would resist them, they would end up taking it by force, which revealed that these priests were supposed to truly serve the living God, but they were, they were, they were serving themselves. To which 1 Samuel 2.17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And then we even see something more revealing and, and even more sickening in verse 22 of chapter 2. We see the fact that, that these priests were engaged in sexual immorality with women in the tabernacle to the point that Eli rebukes them. But in verse 25 it reveals, they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The wages of sin is death. And so as promised by God, because of their sin and, and Eli's responsibility over all of this as well, when it finally came down to this massive war taking place between Israel and the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4, even though Phinehas and Hophni, uh, in kind of a last-ditch effort, they go out and they bring the ark of the Lord to the battle, instead of the sure victory that God had granted in, before in the past, what happens here is the Lord allows Israel to be defeated. 30,000 Israelites were killed. Eli's two sons were killed. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken away, right? The place where God's very personal and glorious presence dwelt with his people. That was captured and it was taken away by the Philistines. And as we read earlier, when Eli heard about the Ark being captured, Right? He fell over and broke his neck and died. And then when his daughter-in-law was also dying as she was giving birth, again, this child is being named Ichabod, which literally means inglorious. Ichabod means no glory. Because she knew that the, because of the depths of their sin, that the glory had departed Israel. Friends, the Bible is abundantly clear over and over again that our, that our sin, our prideful, self-seeking, unrepentant sin affects our proximity to the very glorious presence of God. In this case, with Eli and his sons and Israel, what we see is their continual depravity uh, being uh, done right in the face of God's holiness. And this time it went too far. And so God removes his glorious presence, the very thing necessary for God's people to live and to flourish. 
He removed his very present, covenant, loving, personal, glorious presence. That's what Ichabod is. Ichabod is no more glory. So friends, when it comes to Christmas, as much as we love to celebrate the good news of Christ's incarnation, the beauty of Christ's birth for the salvation of the world, we have to first remember that sin has real and eternal repercussions. The reason that we need the whole Christmas story at all. Friends, the good news is is only good and best when we remember the depths of the bad news. Right, as the history of the scriptures reveal about Israel is that they continually turn away from the Lord. There's this cycle of sin and repentance. The Bible talks about Israel as being those with stiff necks, those who are immoral, those who are full of adultery. And friends, in that, as we see over and over in the scriptures, is that God has limits to his mercy at times, and God even has limits to his grace at times. That's why you see over and over again in the scriptures, when it comes to the people of Israel, how at times God comes to an end in his patience, comes to an end in his mercy, and he brings judgment upon his people. And in this story, we saw how God ultimately uses the Philistines to judge his people. And then through that, he removes his glory from them. As God is everything that that mankind so desperately needs, friends, when we scorn him to his face in ongoing unrepentance, God removes himself. Ultimately, to show mankind yet again their urgent and infinite need of his presence. Friends, unrepentance results in Ichabod. That's the story of mankind. When you look all the way back to the garden, when Adam and Eve had everything that you could ever hope for, right? They had the very personal presence of God. They they could walk with him in the garden. They They had the kabod of God, right? Kabod means glory. And it's the weight of the majesty of the glory of God, his very personal presence with them. They had everything in him, in the garden. And the worst repercussion for their sin was not the weeds that would grow, it wasn't wasn't the toil that would come, it wasn't the birth pains and the eventual death. No, the greatest repercussion that Adam and Eve faced was that the kabod was being replaced with ichabod. No more glory. Right, what happened to them? They were removed from the glorious presence of God in the garden. Their sin separated them from God's presence. We see that again reiterated in Isaiah 59 too. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Brothers and sisters, the truth that all mankind must be confronted with is that sin affects your proximity to the glorious presence of God. We see this again happening over and over and over again with the Israelites. There's this cycle of sin and judgment throughout the Old Testament. And so as this child is named Ichabod, friends, this is a, this is a resounding refrain. Think of it like a, a funeral-like hymn of the story of humanity, that the ultimate penalty is not death. The ultimate penalty for sin is the loss of God's glorious presence. In fact, we see this happen again many years later when Israel was facing judgment yet again in the book of Ezekiel. 
Again, because of their sin and as God's patience had worn out with them, in Ezekiel 8, what we see is, is the glorious presence of the Lord departing from the temple. Right? As, as the glorious presence of the Lord so powerfully filled the temple, if you remember about you know, King Solomon constructing it, God's glorious presence filled that powerfully. But it was because of Solomon's sin and the ongoing unrepentant sin of the people in Israel that God's presence evacuates the temple altogether. If you read Ezekiel chapter 8 to 11, you see that the prophet Ezekiel is receiving visions. And those visions are about God's glory departing from the temple. And it was because of all of Israel's abominations and continual sin. In Ezekiel 8, verses 3 to 4, you see God removing his glorious presence first from the Ark of the Covenant, then from the Holy of Holies, then from the threshold of the temple in Ezekiel 9, until in Ezekiel 10, he finally removes his presence from the temple altogether, until Ezekiel eleven twenty two to 23 says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. And friends, as the glory of the Lord departed from God's people that day, it was never the same for the Jews. As the nation would then split and it would fall apart and be sacked and be captured and taken away, His glory departed them first. Even in their captivity later, we even see God's outward hand stretching out towards them and even restoring his people back to Jerusalem. But what we don't see is his glorious presence returning to the temple. It didn't return the same as it was before. If you remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, our church studied this a couple years ago, uh, as they were rebuilding the wall and they were rebuilding the temple, God's presence in the temple wasn't the same as it was before. As we saw the people uh, reconsecrating the temple in, in the book of Ezra, you don't see or hear of that same God's presence entering the temple as it did back in the time of Solomon. In fact, in Ezra 3.12, you see that the older priests were weeping. In Ezra 3.12, it says, But many of the priests and Levites of heads, or in heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy. Friends, the reason we have Christmas is because we have the greatest need ever. The reason we have the story of Christmas is because we all desperately need the glorious presence of God with us. The reason the world needs the story of Christmas is because in our sin, in our unrepentance, in our unrighteousness, God's glorious presence is removed. Friends, we need the Christmas story because we have the greatest need to which the Bible reveals we have an even greater God. And so, friends, when it comes to God's presence, not only does he remove his presence from mankind because of sin, you and I also try to remove ourselves from his presence because of our sin. Again, if you look back to the story of Adam and Eve, the Bible says that after they sinned, what did they do? Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord and of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and man and his wife hid themselves. Hid themselves from what? The, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God, among the trees of the garden. 
As they were once so free to walk with God in all of his glory, now they were trying to hide from his glory. Friends, this is our natural disposition towards God and our sin. Because we sin, we try to hide from his presence. We try to leave his presence. And we even try to run from his presence. Remember, just one generation after Adam and Eve, when, when Cain killed Abel, right? The, 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 the sons of Adam and Eve, when Ain kills Cable in, or Abel in Genesis 4.14, Cain says to God after that, he says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. If you look at Genesis 4, 16, it says, Then Cain went away. Away from what? Away from the presence of the Lord. And he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So friends, when we choose to remain in our sin, We choose to remain hidden. We choose to leave the presence of God. And this goes on throughout our carnal history in humanity. If you remember the story of Jonah, in his disobedience, Jonah 1.3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from what? From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Friends, that's what we try to do naturally. We naturally want to hide. In our sin, we try to leave. In our sin, we try to run. And so not only does God remove his presence from us because of sin, we also work as hard as we can to remove ourselves from his presence. And so the question for you this morning is, are you hiding? Are you leaving? Are you running from God's presence? Friends, Ichabod is us without God's glorious presence. And if you don't know the Lord, just like the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, right? They didn't know the Lord. If you continue to reject and to hide and and to run from the Lord yourselves, there is a more terrifying and infinite reality that awaits you when it all comes to an end. If you continue to run and hide, you will never taste the beautiful, glorious, loving, saving presence of God. Now, if you continue in your sin and you keep on balling up your fist against God for the rest of your life, right up into that final day of God's mercy and patience towards you, the moment that you step into eternity, right, unrepentant and unresponsive, it will be too late to turn. It's going to be too late to try to cry out for God's presence. Now, the moment you step into eternity, apart from the glorious saving presence of Christ, and the books are opened revealing that you have rejected him from the beginning to the end, you'll not only suffer the absence of his glorious presence forever, but you're going to suffer his wrathful, eternal, judging presence forever. You see, the reason that you hide and and run, run from his presence is is because God is holy and just. And as the wages of sin is death, God must judge your sin through eternal death. If you never repent of your sin and believe in him throughout a lifetime of his mercy towards you, friends, eternal justice awaits. Hell awaits. Hell is eternal Ichabod. Now some may say, well, that's not fair. How can this be? 
this isn't just, this isn't right. Well, let me ask you this question. What do you think is the most just just thing for God to do with you? As God is the most just judge of all, what is the most just thing for God to do with us when we sin and we run and we hide from Him? Let me ask you, in this world, is it fair, is it right to let guilty criminals go free into the streets? Is it just for your government to just decide to let every prisoner go free and to run rampant in the streets? Is that fair? Like when we think about criminals, like I'm talking about all criminals, but just think about the really guilty people of serious crimes. Think about serial killers. Think about rapists. Think about pedophiles. Think about terrorists. You name it. Would the government be just in letting these kinds of criminals go free with no consequence? No, friends, that's not fair at all. That's not just. And you and I wouldn't agree with that at all. So let me ask you again, is it just for God to just let sinners go free who sin against each other and sin against him? Why would you want a God to be like that? Why would you want a God to be unfair, for a God to be unjust? If he was like that, he would cease to be God. But then you might say, well, I get that he needs to be just, but hell is for eternity. That's way too harsh for sin. That's not fair. So let me ask you again, do you have a problem with with a lifetime sentence for a serial killer? No, we don't. Do we have a problem with a lifetime sentence and no parole for, let's say, a serial pedophile who, who will likely recommit the moment he's set free. No, we don't have a problem with that. Now, when it comes to justice, we all agree that the severity of the punishment must match the severity of the crime. The problem that we have with God and hell is that we don't believe that the punishment matches the crime. It really reveals that we think far too little about our sin and even more than that, it reveals that we, f- we think far too little of God himself. Let me ask you, if you were to throw a, a rock, let's say, at your brother or sister, or throw a rock at the Prime Minister of Canada, which one do you think is going to result in a more severe punishment? It's going to be something done against the Prime Minister. If you threaten to hurt your neighbor or threaten to hurt the President of the United States, which one is going to result in a more severe sentence? So then as you follow that and you think about God and who he is in his high and infinite and holy, just righteousness, when we commit a crime against him, how severe should the sentence be against us? David Platt says this, he says, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who was sinned against. If you sin against the law, you're not very guilty. On the other hand, if you sin against a man or a woman, then you're absolutely guilty. And ultimately, if you sin against a holy and eternal God, you are definitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. We have to understand this. And friends, the ultimate punishment of our sin is that instead of the eternal presence of God with us in our unrepentant sin, we are to face the eternal wrath of God. That is justice. That is eternal Ichabod. 
Now, I know that that's heavy, especially coming off the heels of, of Christmas, but it's true, and it's just, and it's right. But as much as Ichabod is us without the presence of God, friends, the beauty of Christmas is that that's not where the story ends. Now, the beauty of the story of Christmas is that in our state of Ichabod, God promised Emmanuel. In our state of us without God, God promises to send himself to us. As Isaiah's prophecies were full of promises about the coming Messiah and a suffering king, he also prophesied to Ahaz in, in Isaiah 7.14. God reveals here, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. To which then, when you open up to the, the gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew replies that, that the person who this is is ultimately perfectly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ himself, God himself, God with us. Friends, as much as Ichabod is us without the presence of God, what's more shocking and what's even more confounding is that Emmanuel is God's glorious presence with us. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. Matthew 1, 18 to 23, we have the story of God's presence coming to man. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, when we were in a state of Ichabod, while you and I were yet sinners, God himself planned to send his son. He planned to send himself, Emmanuel, God's very present, glorious, personal presence with us. Friends, Christmas is all about presence. It's all about the arriving presence of Jesus Christ himself. This child born of a virgin, this child wrapped in swaddling cloths, this child uh, found in, in a stable, born to be called Jesus, right? Why? Because he will save his people from his sins, born to be called Emmanuel, right? God with us. Friends, it is the very present, glorious presence of God that saves God in the flesh. The Apostle John puts it this way in John 1.14, and the Word became what? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory. 
Glory as the only Son from the Father. Friends, because uh, God knew our state of Ichabod apart from his presence, by his grace, by his love, he sends us his presence. He wraps it in flesh. The infinite word of God himself, the Son of God, the perfect revelation of God's glorious presence, right? The exact imprint of his nature, who comes and he puts on our nature to do what? To dwell among us. And this is extremely important. As we see glory and dwelling here in the language of John, John is speaking Old Testament glory and dwelling. That Jesus was not only born to save us, he was born to bring God's glorious presence down to dwell with us. He was born to dwell with us so that we could see his glory. Right? Glory as the only Son from the Father. And when you look at the word dwell here in the Greek, it literally means to tent. It means to tabernacle with us. That's to dwell personally and powerfully and covenantly with us in an even greater way than he did through the Ark of the Covenant in the first story, greater than he did through the tabernacle in the wilderness, greater than he did in, in the temple of Solomon. Friends, Christmas is the fulfillment of all of that. It's a revelation of the return of God's glorious presence to his people through a child wrapped in swaddling cloths to one day, to one day die and rise again. Friends, if there was ever a scandal, this is it. That you and I and the world continually rebel and run and ball up our fists at God, that we have caused his glory to depart, but yet God himself deems to come for us anyways, that God sends himself to love and save and dwell with those who have been waging war against him from the beginning. If we find, we might find the reality of hell as being scandalous, but friends, the true scandal and the true beauty of Christmas, the beauty of the gospel is that God would even remember and care and love and save people like you and I who are so unlovable, so sinful, so undeserving. Friends, when it comes to gift giving, true gift giving is, is not about anybody deserving anything. True gift giving isn't about being owed anything. True gift-giving is full and free. It's an act of love and grace. And the greatest present you could ever unwrap is the saving reality of the very personal presence of God himself. That's what it's all about. It's not just about your salvation from hell. It's not just about your salvation to heaven. It's about God's presence with you which we need to respond, friends, in repentance and, and faith and everlasting joy, right? Singing with the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Because it's in the glorious presence of Emmanuel, friends, that one finds true and everlasting peace and reconciliation back to God's very personal presence. And so let me ask you, have you found that peace? Have you discovered the glorious presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ himself? Let me ask you, do you believe in him? Like, like truly, do you believe in him and what he has done for you? Right, from his arriving presence, right, putting on flesh for you, becoming a human, 
to walk in your steps, to experience your humanity, to be tempted in, in every which way which you have, but yet he does it all without sin. And he does it all to bring his glorious presence to you. Do you believe in this life-saving message that even as Jesus preached, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's now, now is the time to repent of your sin. Now is the time to stop hiding and to stop running and to start turning to him so that you can follow him in his glorious presence forever to learn from him, to, to live for him, to love him, to die for him. Do you believe that he came down for you because your sin separated you from him? That even in your sin now, even in our striving to be good, that, that nobody is good enough. Only Jesus was. And you believe the very personal presence of God came and he took your punishment that you could not handle. That he took the nails that you deserve, that he bore the eternal wrath that no man could ever bear. And that in that he died for you and he was buried for you and that he rose again for you and that he ascended on high for you so that you can be at peace with God forever and ever in the very glorious presence of God. When we think about that, we've got to think back to the garden. That's where we're going. It's back to the garden, back to the very glorious presence of God and friends, this is the message of Christmas. You don't have to be Ichabod forever. Well, the good news is that you can have Emmanuel, God, with you forever. When you read the Gospels and the life and the ministry of Jesus, when you read about Jesus entering the temple on his very last days, right, remembering back to when his glory departed from the mountain, what we see here is Jesus coming down the mountain entering Jerusalem. He enters the city. He enters the temple. His very personal presence was in the temple again. And his ultimate sacrifice for you and me, as Hebrews 9.12 says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And then in his death, Hebrews 10, 19 to 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the making or by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, friends, God's very presence, Emmanuel in the flesh, filled the holy of holies once for all, the perfect and final spotless lamb, which we'll celebrate at Easter, once for all, I remember him saying as well, tear down this temple and what? Three days I'm going to build it up. And in his death, we also remember the curtain tore in two, in, in two. And in his resurrection, what we saw was that the temple is empty. That God no longer dwells in temples made by hands. And in his ascension, God's glorious presence now powerfully and personally dwells within each one of you. He dwells within the church. He dwells within the living temple with you and me, friends. This is the reality of Christmas, that it's all about his presence with us. So when you think about that baby, when you think about Jesus, that Emmanuel in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, think about the incredible joy of his arriving presence for you. 
and now very much so, his indwelling presence for you. Psalm 24, I'm going to close with this. It, it, it's a refrain about uh, God's presence entering the temple. Psalm 24, 3 to 4, and verses 7 to 9 reads, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's this little child. That's Jesus. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, only Jesus. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false, that's the sinless one, that's Jesus. He who does not swear deceitfully. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Come into where? Come into the temple. Come into your heart. Open the gates of your heart. Repent and believe that the king of glory may come in. Verse 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So two significant births. One birth in death, Ichabod. One birth to life, Emmanuel. One birth teaching about God's glory departing because of sin. But a second birth teaching us about the glorious return of God's presence for his people. Christmas is all about the presence. It's all about the very personal, glorious presence of God. Let's pray. Father, as we took a brief tour of what you have in your word regarding your presence, we are nothing apart from your presence. I thank you that we get to gather in your presence, that each one of us here who know you has your very personal, glorious dwelling presence within us as your church, the living temple, the holy priesthood. Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us here this morning to sit under your word and to remember that it is all about your presence, the weight of your glory, your personal presence with us, that Christmas is about Jesus coming, about your glorious presence coming for us. Lord, we pray that as we continue to celebrate during this season, that we would keep our eyes cast upon you. As we just sung, beholding, beholding you for who you are. Lord, we pray for you to continue to work through us as this year closes and as the new year begins. We trust you by your spirit, by your word. We pray that your grace would motivate us, that your gospel would energize us, that your spirit would empower us to respond in repentance and faith as we walk ahead in these days for you on mission for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.